Welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In each episode of this podcast, I look at one small slice of American writing using the Library of America as my source material. In this episode, we'll be coming to the finale of this series on the works of Charles W. Chestnut based on the Library of America volume of Charles Chestnut's writing. He just has one, uh, but it has most of his major work in here. There's a few things not included, but by and large, this is the, the one, the only place you really need to go for, you know, his, his claim to fame. So if, if you're just joining us, I, I've already looked at in other episodes, The Conjure Woman, uh, the short story collection, The Wife of His Youth, uh, The House Behind the Cedars, The Mayor of Tradition, and some of his uncollected short stories. So this leaves us just with a handful of essays he wrote that that were put in this volume. Doesn't quite make up 100 pages, but um, I do want to be complete here. So I'm going to try to I'm going to you know finish it up and, and say a few words about these these seven essays. None of them will come as a surprise to readers who understand Chestnut's work from his fiction. Maybe one or two surprises or things he says outright in the essays that he just sort of alludes to or hints at in the novels. So no big surprises in these essays, but you know, and a couple of them really I think do stand out and should be examined more thoroughly. A, a couple others you could probably pass by. So, you know, when I first read through this volume, I, I think I didn't even read the, the non-collected stories, not to mention the, the selected essays. But taking a closer look at them, I realized that, you know, they do kind of put a nice capstone on on his ideas. And Chestnut's such a focused and clear writer. He's really talking about tradition and the color line and the legacy of Reconstruction and, and slavery as it affected the that generation that came after. He is interested in change over time, but he does see this huge historical burden of, of slavery bearing down on the generation that lived it and remembered the time before slavery ended. Both on both sides of the color line. And then he's really interested in where the color line actually stands. He himself was, you know, could have easily passed as a, as a white man. He, I think W.E.B. Du Bois in his obituary to Chestnut, which I just read not long ago when I was reading through Du Bois' work for my next series, he actually says that Chestnut was a white man who chose to be black. Chestnut probably didn't see it that way. He saw his heritage as, as black, but he you know, he wouldn't have looked at to most people. And that's the characters he often plays with in a lot of his short stories and certainly in The House Behind the Cedars. So he builds on some of these themes in these essays. You know, none of them are going to like, are the definitive work on any subject. You know, we're going to be looking at Du Bois starting with the next episode. And there you're going to find essays that are just indispensable for for just understanding America. Uh, these aren't as as memorable, but it's nice that they're here because they give us just a little bit more to work with and feed on, feast off of before we put an end to this, this really great writer and very interesting writer. So the first of these essays, it was written in 1889, published in The Independent. So Chestnut is, is 30 years old when he wrote this. 
He was born in 31. He was born in uh, 1858. So the, the essay is basically how it sounds. It's trying to talk about color line, and it's doing so in a context in which, in this post-Reconstruction era, in which state governments throughout the South are trying to define the color line, right? So now the historical perspective on this would be under slavery, this wasn't, yeah, certainly color was part of the legal definition of of enslaved people, but you had free blacks, right? So it was more more important than just strictly color was status as slaves, right? And really up until Dred, Dred Scott decision in which black people were universally claimed to, to not have rights as citizens. Now, I don't think the Dred Scott decision itself clearly defined what is a white man and what is a black man. Um, but I, I can look that up. All right, I couldn't find any clear reference that in the Dred Scott decision, blackness was defined in any in any way really what they were trying to do is define citizenship which wasn't it wasn't defined in the constitution prior to well dred scott tried it really wasn't until the 14th amendment that you had citizenship clearly defined in the constitution so it was kind of loose before and there were acts of congress that tried to do this but you know the citizenship of of slaves was of course something that was questioned they were acknowledged in the constitution as part of not the voting block, but part of the population for, for purposes of representation and the three-fifths clause. But, you know, it's... Anyways, what I'm trying to say is there... This, well, in, in slavery, you know, your status, you came from your mother. So your legal status came from your mother. And then, of course, you could be manumitted. You could earn your freedom in other ways. If you could buy it, if, you're, if your master was willing to sell you. There are ways to get from slavery to freedom, but basically your, the status went through your mother. So the color line, I guess, defining the color line was less important legally. That's what I'm trying to say. Now, with, re, with the end of slavery and with the end of the Reconstruction governments, as the southern states tried to implement disfranchisement, and of course, disfranchisement couldn't be done along the color line anyways because of the 15th Amendment. So we'll get to that in another essay that Chestnut writes here. But certainly for Jim Crow laws, for segregation, you know, you had to define, if you're going to say blacks can use this bathroom and whites can use this bathroom, you have to use this bathroom, you have to define these terms, right? And different states had different solutions to it and different answers to it. As we've seen in the House Behind the Cedars, in South Carolina, it was a little bit fuzzier because with the larger black population in South Carolina, the state government wanted to kind of shore up the number of whites. So the kind of, you know, through judicial fiat, made a bunch of people who would have been considered black in North Carolina or, or perhaps Virginia, gave them the statuses as white people. And then other states had harder, like the one drop rule, for instance. Okay, so that's going on legally. And really, it takes off in the 1890s and the first decade of the 20th century as Jim Crow laws get established throughout the country. Now, what Chestnut's doing in this article is, is he's kind of poking a big hole into this whole question of can we define blackness or whiteness and, and of course he does call it what is a white man so he's really focusing on you know why don't we try to define whiteness rather than trying to define blackness so he is kind of challenging the way most thinkers on this issue at the time where we're going at it so what conclusions does he come to well he comes to the conclusion that it's very diverse across states there's no single definition for blackness and whiteness in in the United States, and that's 
questions the whole color line in the first place. And ultimately, he comes to the conclusion that there's no sustainable legal definition that can apply everywhere across the, the country. But he goes a little bit farther than this and starts to really talk about illegitimacy and how it was really white people who, who did most of the mixing of the color line anyways, especially in, in slavery. Quote, whatever the wisdom or justice of these laws, there is one objection to them which is not given sufficient prominence in the considerations of the subject. Even when it's discussed at all, they make mixed blood a prima facie proof of illegitimacy. It is a fact that at present in the United States, a colored man or a woman whose complexion is white or nearly white is presumed in the absence of any knowledge of his or her antecedents to be offsprings of a union not sanctified by law. And by a curious and not uncommon process, such persons are not held in the same low estimation as white people in the same position. The sins of the father are not visited upon the children. In this regard, at least, and their mother's lapses from virtue are regarded either as misfortunes or the faults of excusable under the circumstances. But in spite of this, illegitimacy is not a desirable distinction and it's likely to become less so as the people of mixed blood advance in wealth and social standing. The presumption of illegitimacy was once perhaps true of the majority of persons, but at the times have changed. So now we got the kind of the theme here of historical change, right? The color lines change over time and its meaning is changing and laws are confused across the country. And ultimately the conclusion he comes to is it, it's just it's useless, it's futile to try to define whiteness or blackness in a, in a country in which the color lines have been so mixed up. And a huge chunk of the population through slavery were denied even normal marriages. So even establishing hereditary and, and genealogy is almost impossible for much of the population. So it becomes very dubious effort. So that's really what he's saying in this essay. Uh, what is a white man? Now, the next essay, now this is a doozy. I, I was actually rather shocked to have read it. Uh, it was published in 1900 in Boston Evening Transcript. It's called The Future American. And it's fairly long, but I'll only say a few words about it. I hope. Essentially, he looks at, at the, the contemporary discussions of, of American race and racial theory and scientific racism. Of course, this is the era of social Darwinism and, and, and scientific racism. And he starts to kind of explore all that. And he starts to ask the question is like, based on current trends and what we've been seeing, what is the future of race in the United States? So it's called the future Americans. And this, now certainly at the time, there were concerns among progressives and white racists that kind of the middle-class white family is going away, right? Hordes of immigrants, the yellow peril or whatever is going to come and overtake them. So this idea of the decline of the Anglo-Saxon people in North America with immigration and, you know, pre-existing racial diversity caused by slavery is is going to take away that, that majority, right? And we're now at a place in the United States when this is actually happening. These predictions are coming true. I think now more children in the United States, at least, are born, are not white. This, is the, this happened, I heard, maybe five, ten years ago when that started to shift. And so, you know, over the next decades, we're going to see whites becoming the minority in the United States, or at least a, a plurality, I guess, depending on how you break it up. If it's just between whites and everyone else, then whites will be a minority at some point. Now, but Chestnut goes farther than that, just to say that 
that the United States is going to become more, more mixed. That is something a lot of people were worried about and talked about. He actually goes so far as to say, because of all this interbreeding that already took place in slavery, and because of continuing mixtures across the color line, things he describes in his novels and his stories, you're going to have eventually racial amalgamation. And that's what really shocked me to, to read this in 1900. So I think this is a notable document for that, that reason. So it's predictive in the sense that it envisions the end of the white race, I guess, in the United States. But he goes as far as to say, quote, a complete race amalgamation likely to occur. And he, he provides various evidence of, of, from basic trends. And he talks about the fate of the Indians and how the Indians have sort of been, Indian blood's already been mixed up into, into white blood in certain regions of the nation. And he talks about like what happened in, in Spanish America as a contrast. So he's got some evidence. A lot of it is, of course, projection. But I just think it's, it's, a, it's amazing that it was said in these bold terms in, in the Boston Evening Transcript. And I don't know this newspaper, this, this uh, journal. But there it is. Really interesting. And I, I recommend taking a, just a glance at this one, if nothing else. Because it's just, for me, kind of, it just surprised me. That's all. And it's, it's been a while since I've been surprised by a, a nonfiction essay by a historical figure. <laughs> next, uh, published this, uh, the next year, 1901, is called Superstitions and Folklore of the South. It's in Modern Culture. Sounds like an academic journal. Um, but the essay itself isn't very long. It's probably seven, eight pages. And this, if you've read The Conjure Woman, there's not much here that you probably don't already know. He does tell a few other stories that, that maybe inform The Conjure Woman and the, the tales of, of superstition and voodooism and conjuring in, in, the, in the Old South. He, so you kind of see where these come from, and he even acknowledges that the Conjure Woman was based on some of this research he had already been doing on, on these traditions. And he gets different archetypes. And I think the important thing about this essay in addition to just some of the stories he, he throws in there and some of the commentary he gives on it, is this idea that Du Bois is going to really take off on. And you know, in this way, I'll kind of preface a bit of what Du Bois has to say about culture, is this assertion that African-Americans have always been a major producer of American culture. And that this is something that's going to continue, but it's really rooted in these traditions. And, you know, Du Bois talks a lot in like the souls of black folk and dusk dusk over dawn and some of his other essays on just the the, the kind of the spiritual and cultural contribution of black people to america and that's all comes from the slave the experience of slaves and chestnut is basically in the same place as du bois would be and I, in fact he, du bois i think is writing souls of black folk around 1901 anyways and then one more thing he says certainly is that these are African-American traditions, that they're, they're a mixture. They're not just straight from Africa or even from the Caribbean. They are something that's been amalgamated, you know, in, in North America. Quote, these beliefs, which in a place of their origin had all the sanctions of religion and social custom, became in the shadow of the white man's civilization a pale reflection of their former selves. In time, too, they were mingled and confused with the witchcraft and ghost lore of the white man and the tricks and delusions of the Indian conjurer. In the old plantation days, they flourished vigorously, though discouraged by the great house. 
and their potency was well established among the blacks and the poor whites. Education, however, was thrown the ban of disrepute upon witchcraft and conjuration. The stern frown of the preacher who looked upon superstition as an ally to the evil one, the scornful sneer of the teacher who sees in it part of the livery of bondage, had driven this quaint combination of ancestral traditions to the remote chimney corners of old black aunties, from which it's difficult for a stranger to unearth them. So outside of that, he just talks about how he got involved in this and how he, really the origin of his, of his uh, Uncle Julius tales. Okay, in 1901, another essay, Charles W. Chestnut's own view of his new story, The Merrill of Tradition. Uh, okay, this is really an author's introduction to The Merrill of Tradition. It was published in the Cleveland World, though, but it's the kind of thing you could have taken it out of the Cleveland World and just put it in the front insert of the novel, and it would really work just as an author's introduction. He talks about the major theme of the novel being the traditions that came from slavery and and that one of these major traditions is this power differential and how that's continued to affect relations between blacks and whites. It's just go back and listen to my two episodes on the Merov tradition. And there's not much here that I don't talk about in one way or another. Yeah, not much to say about that. Okay. Next we have a, a, an important essay, although probably a little bit boring for most readers called The Disfranchisement of, of the Negro. It's 20 pages long, so it's a substantial part of the selection of essays. But it's, it's very dry. It's very academic. It's very historical. It's, it's got a very clear job, too. Now, when was this published? This was published in 1903 in The, the Negro Problem, another uh, magazine or newspaper. Now, all he's doing here is, is detailing how various southern states pass laws that created restrictions that prevented black people from voting. So that is his main job here is to give the national audience and probably mostly black readers across the nation an idea of how Southern states were taking away the voting rights, getting around the 15th Amendment, right? So if you don't remember your history, the 14th Amendment provided equal protection under the law for all citizens, enforceable by Congress. And then the 15th Amendment said you can't, states can't take away the right to vote based on race. Could by gender, of course, but not based on race. Now, of course, this is why you had to have the Supreme Court decision Plessy versus Ferguson to test Jim Crow laws. And they had to come up with this platitude, you know, separate but equal, which says this, this kind of guarantees equal protection of the law. So that's how they got around equal protection for the purposes of Jim Crow. But disfranchisement was a bit tougher because it, the 15th Amendment is very explicit, I guess. And so any effort to try to suppress the black vote would have to be done in a way that didn't directly reference skin color. And so how to do this? And of course, if you remember from your history classes, the, the main ways were grandfathered rules saying like your grandfather or something had to be a citizen of the state or be a resident, right? And then slaves who couldn't prove that or black former slaves or black people who was ancestors were slaves, which would have been most black Southerners at the point, right? At that point, you know, they couldn't have proven their residency or their citizenship at that point. So they wouldn't have the right to vote. This also, of course, disenfranchised some, some immigrants, 
So it was also useful in keeping them to vote. And that's one thing you learn when you read some of the histories about this topic is that the Democratic Party in the South was not skittish about taking votes away from poor whites either. I mean, of course, poor whites helped create the Republican coalitions during Reconstruction. Poor whites supported the populists. You know, in the coalition government described in the Merrill of Tradition, it was Republicans and populists working together. So to pass laws to take away the voting rights from both poor whites and from and immigrants and black people was not a particular worry for them. Okay, that's one strategy. Another was, of course, poll taxes or, or just, you know, everyone would have to pay a certain tax and poor people, most black people at the time in the South were poor, couldn't afford the poll tax. Of course, many poor whites wouldn't pay either. So it had the same effect. And then there were laws like the literacy tests. Chestnut makes the argument that Du Bois makes later on that poll taxes is basically a taxation without representation, or in fact, by taking away the right to vote by a large segment of the population, whatever way is justified, it's still coming down to taxation without representation. That, that it's, I get the sense, was a common argument, a, a kind of a talking point that was thrown around a lot in, in these years. So where does he go from here? So it's just a docu documentation of, of how disenfranchisement was, was implemented. Okay, so where to go from here, I guess, is where Chestnut starts to get at the end of the essay. And he's pretty pessimistic. He doesn't really see a way out. He talks about education. And, and, I, and I, it, he's not just talking about vocational education. So he's not like at the Booker T. Washington camp on this issue. He's probably closer to Du Bois's in the idea that you really need some kind of educational infrastructure established as a foundation for citizenship, but he never surrenders the ground that, that citizenship rights have to be earned. So he just thinks it's, it's a strategy that has to be pursued to fighting against this. But he does think, he, he is very clear that these, these are basic fundamental rights that have been seized from people and they don't have to be kind of won back through, you know, some kind of proving, proving, proving oneself through, through education or anything. But he doesn't really see a path out. I, he basically comes down to this idea that maybe the North and maybe the rule of law from the North can save the Black South in a way. And then the states in the North in particular are basically going to have to go... Okay, here's what he says. He says they basically are going to have to go back to a reconstruction mindset. And that is the use of the federal government to discipline and force the South to accept racial equality. You know, and he just says the laws are there, right? The 14th Amendment and the 15th Amendment give Congress the right to enforce voting rights and to restrict representation to states that that don't allow all of its citizens to vote. And it's really up to these national institutions to implement them. So it's, it's kind of the approach that's going to be embraced by, of course, Du Bois and then later on by the civil rights activists of the mid-20th century. Um, but there's, he doesn't really have like a clear one, two, three, four, five program that can roll back disenfranchisement. But this essay is more about establishing how did we get to this point and giving the broader national audience an awareness of how southern states use the law to, to take away voting rights.
Now, this theme of kind of what's to be done comes up again in the next essay called The Courts and the Negro, published in 1908. This was actually a speech. And he, he starts with just how courts throughout history have dealt with the color line and dealt with race and tried to understand it and apply it and apply law to the realities of race and slavery and the color line in the United States. And so he, he starts logically with the Dred Scott decision and kind of how that was a, a pretty disastrous opening to this, this uh, activism by the courts in the issue of the color line. But then he talks about the 13th Amendment and the Reconstruction Amendments and how this kind of changed the court's attitude court and courts broadly across America changed their attitudes about what the federal government could do in managing and race relations, trying to, well, just defend the rights of, of black Americans. And his conclusion then, he, then he comes finally around to the right to vote and how that's been, and we know that's been taken away by 1908, pretty much throughout the whole entire South for, for most black people. So he still here then is holding out hope that the courts have in the past been in a position to enforce civil rights legislation. And those laws are still in the books. Those constitutional amendments are still there and that those powers still exist. So it's really up to the courts to do their part in challenging the institutions of white supremacy in the South. But he's also got a bit of a fear here and a worry, and certainly the Plessy versus Ferguson case wouldn't have given him much cause to be optimistic. I don't think he talks about it here. He's, he seems to be more interested in the reconstruction. Oh, he does talk about Plessy versus Ferguson uh, in one paragraph. But what he's worried about is that the courts will not just choose to ignore the 14th and 15th Amendment, or at least not cho choose not to use their powers in those amendments. Because, of course, the 15th Amendment gives the right to take away representatives from the, the states that deny voting rights. The 14th Amendment has all sorts of enforcement powers as well. And he's just afraid that the courts, kind of driven by this context of, of the rise of white supremacy across the country are going to basically neuter the 14th and 15th Amendment. And, you know, the only good news, I guess, in this essay is that those amendments are still, were still intact. They weren't completely destroyed by the actions, of course, but he certainly worries that it's, that's coming. And then this just leaves us the very last essay. It's only a few pages long. It's, it's quite actually autobiographical. It's called post Bellum pre-Harlem. It's written in 1931, just a year or so before he died. And he it's kind of an interesting memoir on his career, where he sits in, especially in the context of the Harlem Renaissance, which was, of course, already over more or less by, by 1931, or the consequences were still there. And many of the writers were still active. But, you know, the Harlem Renaissance of the 20s and early 30s. Well, I guess the Harlem Renaissance did go into the 30s a little bit. Uh, some, I had a whole series about that about a year ago. So what what's in here? Um, well, he, he takes on, you know, 
the writing of the Condra woman, that's a big part of this essay, and how he got his career started and how it was responded to. He talks about this issue of him, if he was the first Negro novelist, quote unquote Negro no novelist. And he says, you know, no, of course not. He mentions Pushkin, who I didn't know had a black ancestor. And of course, Dumas, he mentions Dumas' father was African-American, actually, uh, from Haiti. So he says, yeah, I'm not the first Negro novelist. And of course, I don't think he knew at the time about about Wilson. So Harriet Wilson, if you if you don't know, in 1859 or so, she published this book, Our Nig, and then it, it was out and then it disappeared. I don't know if, if Chestnut knew about it. He didn't really, he doesn't mention it anywhere, but it, it kind of vanished and it wasn't rediscovered till like the 1980s. So, you know, clearly he wasn't, even by U.S. standards, the first black novelist. Um, but then he goes and, and talks about the Harlem Renaissance in really broad terms. He's not, he's not hostile to it, but he does sort of seem to realize that he's a bit old-fashioned. He's dealing with themes, kind of a very different era. He had more or less stopped writing by this point, at least not writing novels anymore. So he's... It, there's not that much in this essay, actually. It, it's got some good context, I think, on the Conjure Woman. But if you want really his full developed thoughts on the Harlem Renaissance, you're not going to get them here. But he does start to bridge his life to that. And it's it's an effort to try to put some closure to his, his life as a writer. Okay, so that does it for uh, Chestnut's essays. Like I said, they're, unless you really want to, I don't know if they're worth reading. It's nice to know they're here. And I think especially the future American is shocking. I think the disfranchisement of the of the Negro is very useful. And just from a kind of a historical perspective, if you've forgotten how disfranchisement was implemented, it's a good introduction, although it's nothing you couldn't get from a, a decent history book. And yeah, I think those are the most important ones here, but they all have a little bit of value. You know, Chestnut wasn't a nonfiction writer. So anyways, that does it for not only this, but uh, these essays, but also Charles Chestnut altogether. So um, next episode, I'll be continuing this look at turn of the century black writers, and we'll be starting with W.E.B. Du Bois. And this collection by the Library of America by Du Bois, I, I have a few problems with. I, I kind of, th I, I think they need another volume. Now the way it's worded usually when they have multi-volumes they they they'll say like they'll break it up like short stories or you know in one volume novels in another or they'll they'll find a way of breaking it up or they'll do it by dates or something but with the Du Bois novels they just call it writings and, and that's what they do often when they just have one volume by a guy so what's included in in this collection is his PhD dissertation on the slave trade, on the abolition of the slave trade, which is interesting, but it's, I'll, I mean, I'll talk about why I think it shouldn't have been included, or if it is included, it sh I mean, there's other Du Bois writings that are not here that need to be, I guess is what I'm trying to say. So there, there almost has to be another volume, I think, in the works, if you want to have a complete look at him. But for now, we just got the one volume. But anyways, it's got his book on the abolition of the slave trade. Then, of course, it has Souls of Black Folk. And then 
instead, we don't, there, he actually wrote two more kind of essay collections that are really notable. One is, what was it called? Dark Water. And then the third was Dusk Over Dawn. And it has Dusk Over Dawn, but it doesn't have Dark Water. And then you get a bunch of essays, 300 pages of essays, and then like 100 pages of crisis articles. So, I mean, I don't have a problem with what's included, except maybe that his dissertation on the abolition of the slave trade. It's just so technical. And about two, over about 200 pages of the text of this book are statutes and footnotes. And very, it's very, it's very much like a PhD dissertation. And he had this, it's very well documented, but it's got pages after pages of, of like, selections of laws from various time periods. And it's not the kind of thing a casual reader is going to read. It's 400 pages and only about 200 of it is actual text that I'm going to look at. So I'm not going to do four episodes on that. No way. I'll actually be lucky to do two. I'll try though. But what's not included is dark water and black reconstruction in America. Now I understand black reconstruction in America is, I mean, there's just a, like the page numbers. It's, it's hard to manage, right? But that has to be in there. I mean, that, that, to me, that has to be his, that's his central work. And so I'm debating whether to do the Library of Volume series, probably nine or 10 episodes, even though it's like 1,200 pages. And then just on the side, do Black Reconstruction in America as kind of a bonus or if I just stick to the Library of America format. I don't know, but I'm really tempted just to, to go in and do Black Reconstruction in America too. I, I think there probably should be a, a, that I would like to see the Library of America publish, you know, Black Reconstruction in America and maybe other essays or something that have been neglected in this particular collection. But anyways, that's enough on that, um, those complaints and qualifiers. But in any case, I am very, still very, despite what I said, I'm very excited to begin a series on on one of my favorite American writers, probably my favorite American writer of the 20th century anyways, W.B. Du Bois. So um, I'm looking forward to it and I'll be back shortly with at least probably the first episode of a series on his PhD dissertation on the abolition of the slave trade. So again, thank you so much for listening. If you have any comments at all on Charles Chestnut, please leave them below or send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. And if not, I'll see you next time.